You can be seated. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors in the life of our church. This is the time in our Sunday gathering where we give our attention to the words of God. We have come to believe as a people that we cannot live on bread alone, but we are dead without every word that God has given to us. And so this is our daily bread, and in addition, on Sunday mornings, on Jesus' day, the day that he rose from the dead in power and our new life was sealed, we want to hear from him by his Spirit. And so I get the job of trying to unpack the words of Scripture with you today to make them plain, to make them clear, to make them convicting that your heart and your soul may be changed by them to help you by bringing you to these words. All right, let me start here. Uh, One of the books that I have been reading lately is called Dangerous Calling. Dangerous Calling. It's a book that pastors read. It's written by this guy with this giant handlebar mustache. You know, you just just want to walk up and go, vroom, vroom, I got to touch that thing. He was a pastor for years. Now he disciples and he counsels pastors. The big idea of the book is this. Pastors are not some Christian ninjas who have reached some elite level of super holiness unlike the rest of us. But just like everybody else, they are yucky sinners who are in the middle of their sanctification. God is moving them toward holiness, but they are not there yet. Pastoral ministry is like the American Ninja Warrior thing with just trap after trap after trap of temptation into sin. You put those two things together, and if you are a pastor... And you are not fighting daily for personal gospel renewal in your heart by the grace of God. It's going to break bad for you, and it's going to break bad for your people. Okay, you don't need to read the book. I just gave you the cliff notes on it. At the introduction of this book, he wrote these words. I want to start here with you. He said, he's writing the book, there were moments when I would go upstairs to share what I had written with Luella, it's his wife, the tears of conviction would come and I would be unable to continue. Okay, do you feel this right here? What is this? This is a man by the grace of God experiencing grief, sorrow, mourning over his sin, realizing how broken he is, And sin and all of its junk and its effects in his life and on others through his life, it hits him. And what is his immediate response? I just, I can't even, I can't continue. He's taken to this place. But then he writes this, and I'm telling you it's the very next sentence in the book. You can check it out. But as I did my writing... It didn't leave me feeling discouraged or hopeless, but rather with a deeper hope in the gospel and a greater joy in ministry than I've ever known. All right, so I read that and I put the book down and I backed up a little bit because I felt a little bit dizzy. You know the teacups at the carnival outside of Showcase Cinemas in the summertime? 
Okay, that's what I felt like after reading these two sentences back to back. What just, what just happened there? All right, here it is. Yes, his sin was real. And yes, his sorrow over his sin was right. But by faith, this guy did not quit. He did not shut down. He did not lay on the ground paralyzed. He kept writing. He kept doing what the Lord had called him to do. And he was met in that sorrow with, somehow, deep gospel joy. Okay, my big idea for you today is that this is what it's like for you and I to live what we're going to call East of Eden. Our lives will have much sorrow because of our sin and what it has cost us and all the suffering that attends this world. But because the gospel is true, we don't die there. We don't get stuck there. By faith, we live on for God, and He meets us there with real joy. All right, let me pray for us. We'll go into the text, and we'll see if we see some of this together. Father, we need you. Jesus, you were the one who said you can't, you can't really live if you're just doing bread and water. You need my words animating you, correcting you, teaching you. So we give ourselves to those words. I pray that any stupidness that comes out of my mouth would be washed away and just the pure, sweet truth of your word would come through to us today and we'd be changed. Hear my prayer for that and answer, I pray. Amen. Okay. All right, all summer long we've been preaching on the doctrine of man, who it is that Scripture says you are, identity doctrine. We're doing that because your Bostonian culture is constantly hammering you with lies about who you are, and you're always asking us questions about it, and so we were like, let's just take some time and say, who does the Spirit, through the inspired Word, who does Jesus say that we are? Who am I according to Scripture? In the spring, it was all the good stuff. Man, you guys were happy for like two months. You should have seen your faces. Here's what we said. By nature, we were created in love. All right, two big ideas. One, you were created. You are not an accident. You are not the random result of collisions of atoms and quarks and whatever smaller than quarks now over time. You are not some kind of rugged, tough, overcoming super creature that beat out the monkeys to the top of the evolutionary chain. You are created, and that means creator, and that means humility, but it also means dignity, because you were created in love. It took us two months to catalog all the awesomeness that God infused in our identities, in our existence. He put his image on us. He created you with sexuality to be masculine or feminine. He gave you marriage. He gave you sex. He gave you Sabbath. He gave you work. He gave you home. He gave you a garden paradise to rock that was unreal. And ultimately, better than all that stuff combined times a hundred, he gave you himself an infinite fountain of beauty and delight and love and wisdom. 
You were created awesome as an overflow of the love of the Trinitarian God. Boom. We feel that and we go, can I just ask a question here, Cruz? Because that sounds really awesome, but the world that I live in does not feel that really awesome. There's some kind of disconnect here between who you're saying I am and who I feel like I am. And we said, you're right. That's because we're not done with the doctrine of man. So now we're going to move on in the summer to Genesis 3. And we said, we are also broken in sin. It's an identity of yours. Now we use this word fall, and we got to be careful with this word fall. This is a good theological word. As long as you work this thing in the third person, and not the first person. As long as we think in terms of, man, Adam fell, and not the excuses for my life is just that I fell. All right, let's work an analogy so you don't miss this. Has anybody ever taken a really bad fall before? House I grew up in had 173 steps between the front door and where the guys picked up the trash. You know those houses? 173. And I was 10 years old, so I was all arms and legs, and we had this giant trash to take out. And so I began to take the trash out from the top step, wobbly brick, and arms, legs, trash cans, and bricks just to tumble down 173 steps. Boom, I hit the bottom, eyeball bleeding, ankle blew up like a balloon, trash is everywhere. All right, if you ask for my first person take on the fall... How would I describe it to you? Man, I just fell. It wasn't my fault. It was an accident. I didn't mean to do that. This brick was wobbly, and I'm only 10, and the trash was this big, and God created gravity, and he pulled stuff down. I just, I fell. So there's no sorrow there. There's no repentance. There's no, I fell. If you were standing across the street and you observe this, how would you use that word, fell? After you stopped laughing and you uploaded the video to Snapchat, what would you say? You would say, look, here's all I know. Everything was fine when he was at the top of the stairs, and then he fell. And then at the bottom, everything was a giant mess. That's how we use this word safely and accurately. It's not descriptive of the cause of our sin. It is descriptive of the result of our sin created in unspeakable dignity, but through sin, it has all, here we go, fallen apart. Everything's come undone. Nothing now escapes the effects of sin. And so we said, this too is who you are. This is who you are. This is who you are. Those are fighting words in Bostonian culture, but I love you, and I'm telling you, this is who you are. Broken, bent, busted from birth. It's the one doctrine of Scripture that is proven day after day, second after second, with everyone everywhere. What we think, what we say, what we do, what we should do that we don't do, what we're moved by, what motivates us, broken. You will never understand who you are if you don't understand this is a part of my identity. Okay, hold those two thoughts in the front of your mind, and now we're going to go to the text and say, all right, we've done that all for months How do I live on the back end if this is who Jesus says that I am? All right, Genesis 3.22. That's the first thing that we read. That's what I'm going to preach beginning there with you. Adam and Eve, 
have sinned. They've eaten the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The one tree that the Lord had said, that's the one that you don't touch. You've got to trust me. I'm God. You're not. I love you. I'm for you. Will you embrace your station with glad obedience or will you seek to usurp me and put yourself at the top of the pyramid? What's it going to be? And we know that Adam did what you would have done, what I definitely would have done, and he ate of that tree. And so God, who is holy, has pronounced necessary justice on these sinners, and this is the last scene in the garden. Here we go. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. All right, intra-Trinitarian conversation, Father, Son, and Spirit taking counsel together on what to do next. Prior to Adam, Adam, the man's sin, man, Adam, did not know evil. We have no clue on the timing of this, right? How long it was that Adam and Eve were in joyful, glad obedience to God, enjoying His good gifts to them. But there was some wicked awesome stretch of time there that they were ignorant of the reality of sin and the horrors of sin. No idea. But now they are very aware. All right, let me make sure you don't miss this. Before I went to college in Oklahoma, I had never been like south of Philadelphia. That was like the bottom for me. Maybe we went to D.C. to see the the government stuff, but that was it. I didn't know who Garth Brooks was. I didn't know that you could line dance in the club. I didn't know that women would put on makeup just to go to the mall. It was only after my years in purgatory in Tulsa that I became aware of the reality of these awful things and they were pressed on my conscience. Do you feel that? That's what we're talking about here. That's this. Maybe a better analogy. When Grace and I were in uh, South Florida for a conference in July, Matt Chandler, who was leading the conference, gave everybody a warning when we arrived. He said, listen, we're in Miami. If you want to go visit South Beach, do it. But I have to warn you, there will be some things there that you cannot unsee once you have seen them. And he was totally right. Grace and I ate on the patio and everybody's walking by and I'm like, I did not know a man could wear that kind of an outfit. I did not know a woman could wear that kind of an outfit. We saw a dog with a diamond-studded leash and a pink perm and earrings and flip-flops. We s- See, I don't even want to tell you what else we saw because once you hear it, you will not be able to unhear it. Let's just say we got back to the hotel and I took the free body wash and I just squirted it in my eyes like this and I was rubbing under the water, and it didn't work. Once I had seen some of that, could not unsee it. That's what this is right here. Once sin became a reality for our parents, things could never go back to being that they were the way that they were before that. So the Lord acknowledges this, and then we get these words. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. And then there's a pause in here. All right, let's work on this. The big idea, obviously, is that the Lord is saying he cannot touch the tree of life 
in the state that he is in. Tree of life, what is this? The garden was filled with the most beautiful variety of trees. We're talking the biggest, juiciest, fruitiest, ripest, nastiest, most wonderful fruit imaginable. Make Whole Foods produce section look like a, a crab apple tree in December. That's the Garden of Eden. In the center of all of these trees is this one special tree. Maybe it looked different than the others and you just went, whoa, time out, what is that? Maybe it was just a regular tree placed at the center of their lives. Don't miss that. At the center of their lives, this tree. But God had ordained a special purpose for this tree. Life. Immortality given as his creatures feast upon the fruit of this tree. As long as Adam and Eve are eating from this tree, life is theirs. Theology geeks would call this a sacramental tree. Uh, Say it like this. The tree of life was a means of sacramental communion between God and his people. In other words, you know how now in the gospel age we come down to the sacrament of the Lord's table and we're just eating earthy bread and drinking from an earthy cup, but the Lord meets us here in supernatural grace and there is communion here because we are his and he is ours. You know how this table does that? Well, before gospel and before sin, that was the tree of life. As long as they ate of this tree, they had life in this perfect state before the Lord. So think of this tree as representing life, joy, peace, shalom, wholeness, things the way that they were supposed to be, eternal communion with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. But now, what is God saying? We can't let him eat from this tree again. Why not? Well, it would have been both wrong and it also would have been bad. So wrong is obvious, right? God is holy. We know that he will not, cannot commune with sin or sinners. Cannot happen. It would be injustice to allow access in that way to this tree. But he is not just saying no in justice. He is saying no in love. If they eat of this tree in the state that they are in, what happens? This would permanently lock them into this fallen, broken state and a fallen, broken creation. This would be like Groundhog Day only if it was a horror movie. This would be like living the same nightmare over and over and over again, day after day, running to this tree, thinking somehow it's going to fix things, but it can't. A different remedy is needed. And so in love and justice, the Lord is saying, no more access to this tree and what it is. I have a better future for you than being locked into sin. But this garden... And this tree is over. Because of this, therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. Can you feel the double verb in here? Sent out, drove out. This is what we call ex 
communication. This is God saying you can't stay here. Paradise is lost. And then we get these heartbreaking words. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Cherubim are not fluffy, pudgy, cute angels with wings and diapers on Hallmark cards. Cherubim are terrifying creatures. Every time anyone engages an angel in Scripture, they are terrified. Then there's a flaming sword. Notice that it's not a wall or a gate or a moat, but a sword. The sword represents the justice of God. What is God saying in our story? There's no coming back to the tree of life until somebody dies and justice is served. What's the message for Adam and Eve? It's over. There is no going back to the garden as it was. Can you imagine the sorrow that must have attended this moment in our story? I mean, what kind of grief crashed down on Adam and Eve when they were shut out from the presence of God and the blessing of God? So this is life east of Eden. And it's good to mourn right here. It's good to weep right here. This will be the place to do it. Because this is not just them and their identity. This is you and this is me. John Calvin says it like this, the excommunication of our father Adam is indeed our own. Have you ever mourned all that sin has cost you? Have you ever mourned all that you've lost because of your sin. Oh, who I was made to be versus who I have been. The blessing that the Lord intended for me and I just threw it away. Okay, every Christian has been brought to this wilderness outside of these gates in this story, this awful place by the grace of God. Let me help you work through what that would look like. Just think on your sin and the loss. Think on your verbal sin. Think on it. You've been given a voice by God to bless and encourage and speak truth. And what have you done with your mouth? Deceit and slander and gossip and harm. Think of how you have hurt others with your mouth. Think of the tool of righteousness this could have been and all the damage that mouths have done. There is great loss because of sin. Think of sexual sin. Think of the joy and the delight that our eyes and our bodies should have brought to our lives and the lives of others. Think of what your lust. Think of what pornography. Think of what infidelity has cost you. The damage it's done to you and to others. The place that it has taken you to. 
Think about financial sin. Think of how little we give. Think of all the money the Lord enables us to earn and how greed robs us of the opportunity to bless, to advance gospel work, becomes a prison for us because we barely give. Think of what you have lost in the years of your life that you have said, I'm not giving. Think of relational sin. God thought up relationships. Think of how badly you have used and abused and manipulated and neglected those that you were called to be a blessing to. Have you wept over broken friendships? Have you wept over years lost because of the way that you have treated others? Have you wept over divorce, that ultimate breaking of relationship? Sin brings separation from God and His blessing. And then ultimately think about worship sin. How many other gods have we gone after with our lives? How many? How many months on your calendar were wasted worshiping other gods instead of the living God? How much time and energy have we given to the ridiculousness of junk and past on word and prayer and worship and communion with God? Think of the blessing and the joy that has been stolen from you and from others. Adam and Eve would have felt all of that times a million. You've got to remember in this story, whatever you feel, they would have felt sharper because they were the best of us. They had lived face to face with God in all of His beauty and His glory and His love. And now the gates, the sword gates, and they're closed out, and it's lost. This is who we are. This is who we are, all of us. What are you expecting to read next? Come on, if you're reading the story, what are you expecting Adam and Eve to do now in this moment? You've known good and evil you can't unsee what you've seen in yourself now. You've lost all of that. You're looking ahead and you're cursed and you know that your life will be attended with sorrow after sorrow. What does Eve name her second son? Abel, what's that mean? Misery. She's not deceived. She's not naive. She knows what's coming because of her sin. No more access to the beauty and the power and the love of God. What now? Who could see them just laying down and dying, like literally being unable to eat and just overcome with grief? I could definitely see the first divorce in history, just looking at each other with spite and anger and blame and gone. My kids read teenage books, and so I was kind of expecting the double poison berry thing from the end of the Hunger Games. Let's just find some way to be done with this. Look what we've lost. This is Paul Tripp pausing in the middle of his writing and going, I can't continue. Look at who I am. Look at what I've lost. Instead, what do you get? 
And this is how we wrap up this series. You get them pivoting and the best they can, stepping out in faith, obeying God, believing that the gospel that he had given them in the garden was true. And God meets them there east of Eden with deep, deep joy. All right, let's do one more verse together. It's simple and it ties this up. Now Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've received or I've gotten a man and Adam with the help of the Lord, with the help of the Lord. All right, let's work this together. So there is obedience here to the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. They have not disdained the things that God commanded them with before their sin. This is Adam and Eve saying yes to their bodies, yes to God's sexual design for them, yes to their identities. We're going to put this stuff to work for your glory. You've given this to us. And in doing that, there is blessing. Eve carries and, and bears a son. I have gotten an, a man, an Adam, with the help of the Lord. So at one level, there's just straight up joy here. Does this shock anybody? Because we could have just seen straight misery on the back end of the garden. There's just joy here. I mean, anybody ever see the face of a young mom the first time she's holding her child? That is wild joy. Is there a deeper joy? Will and Jen just had baby Amelia last Saturday night. Sam texted me a picture. And, you know, Jen's awesome and, like, straightforward. I love her. She had, like, the giddiest, happiest child grin I've ever seen on her face in my life. What happened? The Lord has given her a child, a daughter. So at the very least, what this text is saying, hey, there is joy to be found east of Eden if you will walk in step with the Lord's intentions for you. That's good news. But there's even better news because there's something deeper going on here. This is not just any kind of joy. This is what we would call gospel joy. In the garden, what was the promise that the Lord had given to Eve? I'm extending and paraphrasing in the light of the rest of the story, but what he said to her was, you have sinned bad, but I'm going to give you a son, and he will crush the dragon who has led you and all of this sin into your story. And that son is going to make all that has gone wrong right again. There is this future coming where that son of yours will reign and all deceit, all evil, all blame shifting, all pride, all unbelief, all falsehood, all sin, all of its effects will be no more. This was the gospel that was given to Eve. What does Eve's response to the birth of her son tell you about where our mother's heart was in relation to the gospel? What does it tell you? She was in. She was ready. She was believing what the Lord had promised her east of Eden. I received the son with the help of the Lord. 
I know that I've sinned, but God has spoken to me and been gracious to me and told me he was for me and my seed would somehow make this right. And either he's done it or he's doing it. So this is a fun argument. We don't know whether or not Eve thought Cain was the Christ. It's possible that she was like, here he is. You're going to make all things right, this kid. Whether or not she thought Cain was Christ specifically, what's the big idea? That east of Eden, she was believing the word of the Lord, the gospel promise of God. Her heart was Godward. Look at it. Worship, acknowledgement of God. I'm going to believe, even in this sin-caused sorrow of this world, I'm going to believe and obey because God's going to do what he said. He's given me a son. And Eve is met there with joy. That is how holy people, the saints of God, live east of Eden. Not with identities that are stuck at broken in sin, but defined by something outside of us. The grace of God announced to us. And here's how we say this. Ultimately, you want to know who Jesus says you are? Everything we've said for 90 days is true, but here's the bottom line. It's gospel. You are redeemed in grace. Now we could work a billion texts that show this off to be true about who you are if you believe the gospel. We'll just finish with something from the very back of your Bible. So we've been in the beginning. We're going to skip all the awesomeness and just do that for the rest of our lives. But here's the end. I don't know if you can see this and not weep. Here's John's final vision of the fulfillment of the gospel. Here's what he says. Blessed. What's that word? What is that word? kind of a Bible word. Joy. But blessed is like deep, deep joy. I'm taking you today from standing outside of the garden in the first 10 minutes that we realize everything is lost and I'm telling you that God ends the story somehow with joy. Blessed are those who wash their robes. What's that? That's gospel faith. That is cleansed through the good news of the perfect life and the atoning death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. That's you saying, my identity has moved from sinner to saint because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's not just created in love and then fallen in sin and stuck there. But that is redeemed in grace. And there is blessed joy there. Why? Blessed are those who wash their robes. They have the right to the tree of life. They may enter the city again. This time a garden city. Through the gates. <laughs> Do you feel this? Where's the sword? gone. The sword's been used. Pierced the side of Christ. The sword's gone. There's no mate, moat. There's no walls. There's no gate. There's no sword. 
we can walk back into the garden only better. Justice has been served at the cross of Christ. Eden is back, just much, much better. Our ability to enjoy God forever only gets brighter because sin is in the story. It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and brings us to a future where sin is gone permanently. That is crazy joy. This is our future. This is why Christians don't lay down and die east of Eden. This is why we can live with the tension of sorrow, deep sorrow. Get ready. Your life will be attended with sorrows. But faith and obedience and joy, deeper gospel joy, deep sorrow, deeper gospel joy. What did we read together? It's Jesus. In this life, you will have many trials and sorrows. But what? Take heart. I, the promised son, have overcome the world. This is how we live east of Eden. All right, let's pray together. Father, would you tease this out? Would you press these truths in our lives this week? There's a million ways to now go from here and believe and obey. I pray that there would not be a community in Melrose that lives better in the tension of sorrow and joy, of tragedy and blessing, of mourning and rejoicing. Help the identity of Seven Mile Road be sorrowful and yet always rejoicing because of who Christ is. Thank you that you have not left us outside the garden, but you're bringing us back to an even better reality. May each of us walk well there. Hear my prayer and answer. Amen. Amen.